Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear Douglas Wilson's talk, The New Heavens and the New Earth, from our audio collection titled, From the River to the Ends of the Earth. This series is about historical optimism. What might that be, you ask? If, when someone mentions the word eschatology, you think of the Left Behind series and of folded clothes left on planes, this eschatology is exactly the opposite. A book on our shelf that would complement the series well is Doug's Heaven Misplaced, Christ's Kingdom Here on Earth. Though most Christians refrain from predicting exactly when our world will end, many believe that when Earth's finale does arrive, it will be a catastrophe. They expect that before Christ comes back to reclaim his own, Satan will escape his chains and return to wreak havoc on our planet. The details vary, but the general assumption is the same. Things will get much, much worse before they get better. But is this really what the Bible teaches? Leaving aside the theological terms that often confuse and muddle this question, Douglas Wilson instead explains eschatology as the end of the greatest story in the world, the story of humanity. He turns our attention back to the stories and prophecies of Scripture and argues for hopeful optimism. The belief that God will be true to his promises, that his will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven, and that the peace and goodwill we sing about at Christmas will one day be a reality here on earth. You can get Heaven Misplaced at canonpress.com. If you'll turn uh, to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter. Chapter 3. I'd like to begin reading at verse 10. 2 Peter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray. Father, please open our eyes and hearts this morning. We come to you needing the instruction of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for promising his presence with us. It is very necessary. We are very thick sometimes. We confess that learning and study, while blessed instruments in your hand, are impotent in themselves to reveal the treasures of your word. We ask you to bless and anoint this congregation of your people this morning as we come before you with open Bibles. Father, unless you build the house, those who build it labor in vain, and unless you unfold a passage, it will remain complex and dark. We want to walk in the light of your word. We want to receive the blessings promised in it. We ask and beseech you to be kind to us, your people, and to teach us your word. We confess in many parts of the church today, confusion about your word is prevalent, a result of disobeying your word. Father, we have been a part of this. Please forgive us, cleanse us, and now this morning, teach us. 
In Jesus' name, amen. As the scripture tells us, we are to be adult, we are to be mature and grown up in our understanding, but we also have to cultivate uh, what the Bible describes, what Luke describes in the first part of Acts when he describes the early Christians, how they ate their, their bread with gladness and simplicity of heart. We are to be mature, on our, mature in our understanding, but we are also to live before the Lord, eating our bread with gladness and simplicity of heart. I believe that we can be refreshed in both ways. I have our understanding expanded and grow in our understanding and mature in our, mature in our understanding, and also be reduced to a more simple approach to, of, um, a more simple approach of God and a more simple approach of one another and understanding the church's position in the world so that we can have that simplicity of heart as we grow in our understanding. If we simply add knowledge, we're going to become puffed up, as, as the Apostle Paul tells us. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. But a godly, loving knowledge does not puff up at all. Knowledge, true knowledge, knowledge that goes to the heart of it, is something that is going to enable us to, to live before the Lord with that same sort of gladness and that same sort of simplicity of heart. And in particular, this subject that we're going to be considering this morning as we, con as we continue the series on historical optimism, the position of the church in the world today and what God intends to do in the world uh, through his church as the church is empowered by his Holy Spirit, we can understand what is going on around us if we come to understand what the Bible teaches about the very important subject of the water of life. What does the Bible teach about the water of life? Now, in this text, uh, in 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13, there are a number of things that, that, around, uh, that will cause questions to arise. And if you've read through the passage once or twice, if you're a brand new Christian and you don't know a lot about uh, how the Bible uh, communicates certain things, you will read this passage and you'll say, well, this looks like to me that the planet Earth and the stars and all the galaxies, the material universe, will one day be put into God's oven and will melt like butter would melt in an oven that you, that you put the butter in. Everything's just going to uh, melt and run away. The, the material elements will dissolve. And, it's, and it certainly looks that way if you just glance at it and, uh, and look at it with 20th century eyes. It says, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens, there it is again, the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Now, my interest uh, this morning, I, I want to be preaching from verse 13, where Peter says that we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. But I want to take just a few minutes to comment on 10 through 12, because I don't want those verses to be a distraction uh, for you as you come to understand verse 13. We're going to be talking about the new heavens and the new earth, but in order to understand that, we have to understand what the Bible teaches about the old heavens and the old earth. Now, the, the indication, the, the conclusion that we might draw if we just read this for the first time is that this is talking about the end of the world. The old heavens and the old earth are the world as it's currently constituted, and then at the end of the world, God will come and put the universe in his oven, and the whole thing will melt. I don't believe that that is what the Bible is teaching us here. I don't believe that that is what it's talking about. What we mean by elements is not what the Apostle Peter meant by elements. 
we should understand that this is not talking about the meltdown of the periodic table. This is not talking about the meltdown of everything that we understand by the word element. This is a good example of how we cannot approach the scriptures with an anachronistic understanding. We can't take a word that we understand. You've all been um, uh, through the science, uh, the science classes that taught you these are the elements. Well, this is what we understand the word element to refer to, but that is not what the common understanding of element was in the first century. Now, I'm not saying that our our understanding is right and theirs wrong or the other way. It's simply two different, uh, two different definitions. The word that Peter uses is stoicheia, which I would like to submit to you um, may be applying to what we can call the elementary gods uh, of the ancient world, earth, air, wind, and fire. Earth, air, wind, and fire. Now, the ancients understood this to be referring to physical elements as well, but they also understood that there, was, there were elementary um, deities underneath that. They understood that earth, air, wind, and fire had certain celestials associated with them. And you recall that last week we looked at everything the Bible taught about the toppling of the principalities and powers, the toppling of their authority, how the old order was done away with in the death of Jesus Christ. The old heavens and the old earth was the time leading up to the conquest of Christ on the cross when he was crucified and then was buried and then was raised from the dead. Turn, keep your hand here and turn quickly to Galatians uh, chapter 4. Uh, the Apostle Paul uses the same word, uh, stoicheia, in Galatians 4, 3 through 8. Verse 3, it says, Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Now, the word elements there is the same word, stoicheia. We, when we were children, were under bondage, uh, under, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. Now, some of you, if we understood this as the periodic table, uh, we, were not, we were not and are not under bondage to the periodic table, unless you're struggling in that science class. You, you may be under bondage in a certain measure, to a certain extent, but that's not what Paul is talking about here. When we were children, we were under bondage to the stoicheia, the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, it, there's a reference to the prince of the power of the heir the prince of the power of the air. In Revelation 14, there is a reference to an angel, it says, who had power over fire. There's an angel who had authority over fire, power over fire. In Ephesians, there's the prince of the power of the air. And there are two of the elements that, are, that were common knowledge as the elements in the ancient world, earth, air, wind, and fire. Now, the elements are, will melt with a fervent heat. The heavens are dissolved. Now, this dissolution of all things is referring to the toppling of the principalities and powers, which is a common theme throughout the New Testament, as we saw last week. If you understand, back, back in Second Peter, if you understand verses 10 through 12 in this way, that this great noise, this fervent heat, this thing that will melt down the old structure, everything is dissolved, everything is uh, overhauled, and you see that as the dissolution of the old celestial order 
the old elementary order, the old, uh, the old order in which human beings lived in uh, what amounted to slavery. Even the redeemed people of God, even the Jews, lived in what amounted to slavery because they were still not in their majority. They were not grown up yet. They were still in their infancy. And so God took even the people of God were held by the hand as the church of God was in its toddlerhood. The church of God um, grew up, and as the Apostle Paul explains in Galatians, uh, a billionaire who's two years old is, uh, for all practical pur- purposes, still a slave. He has all these, uh, these billions of uh, dollars that he's going to inherit, but people still put him to bed at a certain time, and they get him up, and they feed him things he doesn't want, and so forth. He says the Jewish people were in that condition when they were under the law. They were billionaires. They were going to inherit the world. They were going to inherit everything, but they were indistinguishable from a slave. They were living, along with the rest of the pagan world, under the old heavens and the old earth. Now, the reason I want to set that stage is because Peter is, Peter is writing this at just the transition point. He's not, he's not talking about something that's going to go on for many more thousands of years, and then the new heavens and the new earth will come in at the end of all things. Peter is writing and living and speaking to these people at the point of transition. We are going from the old heavens to the... Uh, the old heavens to the new heavens, the old earth to the new earth, and Peter mentions this in verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, Peter's phrase here is very important. We can say, well, it, he doesn't say anything about the new heavens and the new earth. How, you know, can't, can't you interpret that as what's going to happen at the end of the world? And, and Peter doesn't say it isn't that way. Well, no, Peter does say that it's not that way. Peter makes it very clear that he's talking about the new heavens and the new earth that have been ushered in by the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how do you know that? Well, look at the phrase that's very important in this verse. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise. Peter didn't come up with the phrase new heavens and the new earth by himself. Peter didn't say, I know, let's throw this out and see how people like it. He is referring to something in the Old Testament. He is saying that there's something promised in the Old Testament, and this is what we as Christians are looking for in the first century. We, we look for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. And he says we're looking for this new heavens and, and, this new heavens and, and new earth according to the promise. Well, this should, this should generate a question in your mind. What promise? When did God promise that? When did God promise a new heavens and a new earth? There's one place in the Old Testament where God promises this. Turn, if you would, to the book of Isaiah, the last two chapters. Now, this uh, may be a good um, time to ask you to do this. The passages that we're going to be considering today, I, uh, we don't have time to work through all of the, uh, these chapters, but I would like you, as you consider these things and meditate on them, to read through very carefully um, Ezekiel 47, as you, as you think, study these things, Ezekiel 47, the last two chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah 65 and 66, and the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. All right, the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, the last two chapters of the book of Isaiah, and Ezekiel 47. Now, we're going to consider all these passages today, but I would like you to um, get the context and fix it in your minds and read through it and study it. There are some wonderful, there are some wonderful things in these passages. Now, if you look at um, Isaiah 65, the first two verses, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, 
Here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, according to their own thoughts. A people who provoke me to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. Incidentally, that's where our phrase holier than thou comes from, from the authorized version. Stay away from me, I am holier than thou, I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will repay, even repay into their bosom, your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains and blasphemed me on the hills. Therefore I will measure their former work into their bosoms. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, Do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it. So will I do for my servant's sake, that I may not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob, and from Judah an heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall be a fold of flocks in the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down, for my people who have sought me. But you are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a, a table for Gad, and who furnish a drink offering for many. Therefore I will number you for the sword, and you shall all bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes, and chose that, which I do not delight, chose that in which I do not delight. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servant shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wail for grief of spirit. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name, so that he who blesses himself on the earth shall bless himself on the God of truth, and he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hidden from my eyes. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Now, you might say, well, I, you know, I read, I've read through these sections of Isaiah before, and I've not understood what he's talking about. How do I know what this is, reference, what this is talking to? And if I see one Christian... Uh, what, what this is addressing. If I see one Christian saying, no, it's the end of the world, and another Christian saying, no, it's the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant, how am I to determine this? Well, one of the things that... You, this is why we need to be careful Bible readers, and especially, this is why we have to take note of those passages in the Old Testament that are quoted in the New Testament. I want you to keep your hand here, and I want you to turn to the last... Excuse me, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 10. I want you to, I want you to compare some things. In Romans 10, the Apostle Paul is talking, uh, giving a defense of his mission to the Gentiles. Why is he preaching to the Gentiles? I'll begin reading in verse 17. So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the, er all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses said... I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will anger you by a foolish nation. 
Now, this is a quotation from the Old Testament that says God is going to provoke the Jews by calling the Gentiles. All right? God's going to provoke the Jews by calling the Gentiles and including the Gentiles in uh, the number of his elect. And then it says, but Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, in Romans chapter 10, verse 20 and verse 21, the Apostle Paul is quoting the first two verses of Isaiah 65, the passage we just read. And Paul tells us in verse 20 that Isaiah is talking in verse 20 about the invitation to the Gentiles to come into the Christian church. And in verse 21, he is talking about Israel, ethnic Israel. It says, but to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands. Now go back to Isaiah 65. We see a theme here that Paul, Paul has established for us in the first two verses of Isaiah 65. In Isaiah 65 and 66, he is talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. And he is saying that he is sought by those who did not ask for me. The Gentiles were just doing their own thing, worshiping their stone idols, worshiping uh, their principalities and powers. They were in bondage to darkness. They didn't want to have anything to do with God. But uh, by, by God's grace, these people sought God, and he says, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. They didn't seek me, but they found me anyway. They didn't ask for me, but they asked for me anyway. I've been found by the Gentiles. The Gentiles have come to me. And then Paul says, but to Israel, he says, and then he quotes verse 2, I've stretched out my hands all day to a disobedient people. Now, it says in verse 15, you shall leave your name as a curse. This is a word to ethnic Israel. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen. For the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name. That new name is Christian. He will call his servants by another name. He will call his servants by a new name. Your old way of doing things is going to be largely forgotten. God's going to call his servants by another name, Christian, so that he who blesses himself on the earth shall bless himself on the God of truth, and he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hidden from my eyes. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. This is the promise that Peter is referring to. This is the thing that Peter is claiming. Now, clearly, it's not talking about the end of the world. Clearly, it's talking about the transition from an ethnic, uh, from the church that, w that was uh, largely connected to a particular ethnic group to the making of an international church where the, the gospel goes out to the whole world. There's another reference to the new heavens and the new earth in chapter 66. Uh, I'll start reading at verse 20. Then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all nations. And notice this. They're going to bring an offering out of all nations. On horses and in chariots and in litters, on mules and on camels. To my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering and a clean vessel into the house of the Lord. And I will also take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. Now it's very clear that the new heavens and the new earth is not referring to the eternal state. It's not talking about after the resurrection. It's talking about the Lord bringing a new order on this earth. And he did so in the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the transition point from the old heavens and the old earth to the new heavens and the new earth.
Now, look at the first verse in uh, chapter 66. One of the reasons we are not to look for material fulfillment, we, we're not to look for the old heavens and the old earth to be blipped out of existence and then God to make a new heaven and a new earth materially. We're not to look for this because Isaiah tells us not to. Thus says the Lord in verse 1 of chapter 66, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Now remember, this is quoted many times in the New Testament. All right, this, is, this is quoted in the New Testament. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand is made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. The Lord is building a new temple. In the old order, the the temple that was built was material. You could walk up and touch it, you could feel it, you could see the temple there. You could walk to the old Jerusalem. You can still go to the old Jerusalem today. You could, you could go to the old Jerusalem. You could go to the old, te- the old temple. You could worship God materially there. And this place was appointed by him. But the new Jerusalem, the new temple, does not, is not made of atoms in that way. The Bible tells us very plainly, over and over and over, and the New Testament tells us repeatedly, that the new temple in the new Jerusalem is the Christian church. Paul tells us in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 3 and in 1 Corinthians 6, he tells us, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the temple. The the temple's not in Jerusalem. It's not going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. God didn't want that temple anymore. It served its purpose, and you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Peter, in 1 Peter 2, talks about how each Christian is a living stone, a stone who is alive, a breathing brick. Each, each Christian is being incorporated into this holy temple, this holy house, this holy priesthood, and we are being worship and serve the Lord in spirit and in truth. We are living stones. We are the new Jerusalem. Turn to Revelation 21. We're going to be there again later, but you can turn there now. Revelation 21. Verse 1 and 2, and then verse 9. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. The new heavens and the new earth is the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven as a bride, adorned for her husband. What is this new Jerusalem? Look at verse 9. Then one of, the angel, one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. The angel says, Come, I will show you the, the Lamb's wife. I will show you the bride of the Lamb. And what does he show him? He shows him the new Jerusalem. Now, who is the wife of the Lamb? Who is the bride of Jesus Christ? The Christian church, Ephesians 5. The Christian church is the bride of Christ. The Christian church is the wife of the Lamb. The Christian church is the New Jerusalem. All right, do you have that? The Christian church is the New Jerusalem. The establishment of the Christian church, the inauguration of this glorious new order at Pentecost, was the inauguration of the new heavens and the new earth. All, right, all of this, I believe, falls together very plainly. 
Now, turn to the Gospel of John, if you would, because I want to tie this in with the phrase living water. In John chapter 4, verses 13 and 15, 13 through 15. You know the story how Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus teaches us here that the water he offers, the water he brings, the water he brought, the water of, of which he is the fountain, is everlasting life. Now, we, we know uh, enough of our Lord's teaching. We know how the Bible uh, expresses itself that I trust that we don't make the mistake the woman here does. When Jesus starts talking about the water of everlasting life, we are not to look in the bucket. We are not to look for a bucket. We are not to look for physical, tangible H, uh, H2O. We're not to look for water of that type. This water is everlasting life. Turn a few chapters later to the seventh chapter of John. Verse 37, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus was preaching water of life. Jesus was preaching living water. He told the woman at the well that the water that he, that he had was, the, was everlasting life. He tells us here that the water he has is the Holy Spirit. John tells us very plainly that he spoke concerning the Spirit, and the Spirit would be received by those who believed in him. Now notice it says in verse 38, He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We really need to understand our Bibles and not ignore, gloss over little expressions like that. Remember what Peter said according to the promise. Well, we should ask, what promise? Where did God say that? Notice what Jesus says here. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said. Now, where did the scripture say that the one who believes in Jesus will have living water flow out of his heart? Where does the scripture say, the Old Testament say, that the one who believes in Christ will have living water flow from him? Turn to Ezekiel chapter 47. Because that is the passage Jesus is referring to. Ezekiel 47, the first 12 verses. This is one of those places in the Old Testament where you probably have read through before and you've said, huh. Huh. I would prefer you say, wow. The first 12 verses of Isaiah 47. This is the passage that Jesus is referring to. This is the passage Jesus is referring to. Because Jesus says, if the one who believes in me, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. There's only one place in the Old Testament that talks about rivers of living water. And this is it. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. And there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. Now remember, who is the temple today? Who is the temple now? 
This is not a material temple. This is not a physical temple. Under the threshold of the temple, toward the east, for the front of the temple faced east, and the water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gateway that faces east, and there was water running out on the right side. Then when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits, and he brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. And again he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. Again he measured 1,000 and brought me through the water. Brought me through. The water came up to my waist. Again he measured 1,000, and it was a river that I could not cross, for the water was too deep. Water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned, there along the banks of the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and the other. Then he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley, and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. And it shall be that every living thing that moves, wherever the rivers go, will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish, because, because these waters go there, for they will be healed, and everything will live wherever the river goes. It shall be that fishermen will stand by it from En Gedi to En Eglaim. There will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be of the same kinds as the fish of the great sea, exceedingly many. But its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to salt. Along the bank of the river on this side and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their waters flow from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. Jesus teaches us what this means. Jesus tells us that the scriptures say that whoever believes in him, out of his heart, out of his belly, will flow rivers of living water. This is what it's talking about. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and out from under the threshold of the temple of the Holy Spirit, living waters flow. And when it first starts to flow, Ezekiel tells us, it's ankle deep. And then it's up to your knees. And then it's up to your waist. And then it becomes a river that you can't cross. It inundates the world. Now, the river of Ezekiel is the Holy Spirit. The river of Ezekiel is everlasting life. The river of Ezekiel flows out from underneath the threshold of the Christian church. Now, it's very interesting. If you, if you read all the passages that I've told you about, Isaiah 65 and 66, and the last two chapters of Revelation, and this, then this chapter, you will see many parallels between these different passages. Turn now to uh, Revelation 21. In Revelation 21, notice what John says when he's speaking of the New Jerusalem. If you look at Ezekiel and then you look at Revelation, it's very clear that Ezekiel's temple and what John is describing in the book of Revelation are the same thing. But what John is describing is the same thing as the new heavens and the new earth that the prophet Isaiah is describing. And Jesus is describing what Ezekiel was describing. Now what this tells us, if you put it all together, is that Peter and Isaiah and the Lord Jesus and Ezekiel and the Apostle John in the book of Revelation are all talking about the same thing. Verse 1 of 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Look at chapter 22. Verse 1. And he showed me a pure river, of, a pure river of water of life. That same phrase. Showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of the street, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, do you remember that from Ezekiel? What grew on either side of the river in Ezekiel? There were trees, fruitful trees on either side of the river, and the leaves were for healing. And what does John say? He says, the river of the water of life flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It's a pure river. It's the water of life. And it says here that the trees from these, the leaves from these trees are for the healing of the nations. The last two chapters of the book of Revelation are describing the impact the Christian church will have on this sinful world. And it's not going to have an instantaneous impact. Remember, Ezekiel said, the water, when it first starts to flow, is ankle deep. And an unbeliever can look at it and say, just, you're just making a mess. Just a puddle. Just ankle, ankle deep. But then it's knee deep. And then it's waist deep. And then you can't swim across it. And then, as Isaiah says elsewhere, the, water, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now look at the last part of 22. And I want to conclude with these thoughts. In verse 17. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts, Come. And whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. This water of life is salvation. It's everlasting life. It's the Holy Spirit. It is the fruit of the gospel, and the gospel is not going to come into the world at the end of the world. The gospel was manifested in the world in the middle of history when Jesus was crucified, was buried, and rose again from the dead, and that is when the water began to flow. That is when it began to flow, and that is when it began to get deeper, and it's going to continue to get deeper and deeper and deeper until the world is flooded as it was flooded in Noah's day, but with blessing and not with a curse. And we, the Christian church, ought to be able to issue an invitation, but because of our current unbelief, but because of our current blinders, we do not say with the Spirit, come. It says in verse 17, and the Spirit and the bride say, come. We are so we have such a truncated view of the Great Commission. We have such a truncated view of salvation. We have a truncated view of the water of life. We, th- we believe that people get saved, sure enough, and people come up to you and say, what is the water of life? And you say, well, I have a thimble full of it in my heart. And this thimble full of the water of life is enough to get me into heaven when I die, and I hope that you get your thimble full. But the water of life is not a thimble full. What does Jesus say in John 7? Whoever believes in me, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. This water is not designed to everybody have a little parcel of living water measured out to them so that they can be sure to get into heaven when they die. God is going through the world saving people, and when he's saving people, he's turning on a spigot, and he's flooding, and he wants it all to run out from under the threshold of the temple, and he wants it to inundate the world. And the spirit and the bride should say to the unbeliever, come. This is, God is not going to run out. He's not going to run out of his blessings. His intention and his desire from the beginning 
was to be the Savior of the world through Jesus Christ. His desire and, and, and good pleasure from the beginning was to bring salvation to the entire earth. His pleasure and intention from the beginning was to have all the families of the earth come and worship before him. His desire and intention was from the beginning to have this, this river flow from the Christian church out of the heart of every true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and flood the world with it. And when the Spirit certainly understands this, but there are times in history when the bride doesn't. And we need to come to the point where we can say, the bride can say together with the Spirit, Amen. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. Yes, come. If you're an unbeliever, come. This is God's invitation. This is not an example of playing just as I am 48 times and trying to get people uh, down to the front of the church to sign a card. This is an invitation to drink of the water of life. Let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's the same thing. If you are weary, if you are thirsty, if you are tired, if you are lost, if you are sinful, if you are going to die of thirst, the word of the Lord to you is, Come. But you, you might say, Well, I, I can't come. I know a lot of Christians, and they each have a thimble full each. If I were to ask them to draw a picture of what happens when you walk out the door of Ezekiel's temple, they would, they would shuffle out in a sort of defeated way, and when they walk out of Ezekiel's temple, little puffs of dust would appear wherever they walked. There's no water here. All the water is in, inside the temple and little thimbles on a shelf. Salvation for the world is messy. Salvation for the world is exuberant. Salvation for the world overflows. And Christians have gotten themselves to the point where they believe what the enemy says about the salvation that's coming to the world, instead of believing what the Spirit says and what the bride should be saying, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. In verse 21, it says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This water is for the world. This water is not just for a handful of people in a tiny sect tucked away in a corner of the world. This water is for the world. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, he did not give it as something for us to attempt. He didn't say, this is something that I want you to try to do, and after you vainly try to do it for 2,000 years or 3,000 years, and you're all sweaty and exhausted, then you can come to heaven, just a handful of you that you got, after unsuccessfully trying to evangelize the world. Jesus did not command us to unsuccessfully try to evangelize the world. He told us that the water of life was to flow from the temple, and it was to flow from the temple until it covers the world. Now, this is what God's purpose is, and this is what is going to happen. We cannot, by our disobedience, keep this from happening. This is God's intention. By our disobedience, we may remove ourselves from the blessing of participating joyfully and consciously in what he does, but he will do it nonetheless. And if he's going to do it, then it would behoove us, it would be a great blessing and a great treasure to us to self-consciously understand that an efficacious gospel of a risen Lord is for the world and not for a tiny band of frozen chosen. We are, we are not here to keep it to ourselves. We are to, we are to evangelize as naturally as we are to love and laugh and share with our friends and have people into our homes. This, this message that we have, this gospel that we have, this Lord that we have should be getting unbelievers wet all the time. And they should see it happening more and more. And more and more of them get wet. And more of them, having gotten wet, decide to drink. And when they drink, they are restored. 
When they, are, when, when they drink, then God starts causing living water to flow out of them. This is his purpose for the world. Why is it his purpose for the world? Because the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and the salvation of the Holy Spirit that flows out from every believer and the everlasting life that is evident in every believer and the temple of the Holy Spirit which is being built up out of living stones, which temple you are, all these things are referring to the same thing. As we look at the world today, we still see a lot of sin. We still see a lot of despair. We still see a lot of dust. We see places where we need trees to grow. We, we need leaves from those trees for the healing of the nations. But I can tell you that when Jesus Christ appointed those 12 fishermen, the water was only ankle deep. There's a long way to go, but it's at least knee deep by now. And it's going to be waist deep, and it's going to be chest deep, and it's going to be glorious. It will never end. God is going to bless this world. God, through Christ, is going to save this world. And this world can say, no, all at once. It's going to happen anyway. This world can rebel all at once. Its time is limited. It better, they better get it out now because God is going to save this world. That's not, going to be, that's not to say that every last person is going to be saved. That's not to say that there are no reprobate. That's not to say there are no Judases and there are no Pilots and there are no Pharaohs who are lost. But when all is said and done, when God's purpose for this planet is accomplished, it is going to be a saved world. Because Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is not the attempted Savior of the world. He is the conqueror. He is the victor. He is the champion. He is not the contender. He is the King. He is the Lord. He is Jesus Christ. Father God, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. We thank you that the Spirit invites the bride to say come to a thirsty world. We thank you that the Spirit does say come regardless. We thank you that your purposes for this planet, your purpose for this world will never be set aside. We thank you that you don't change your mind. We thank you that you don't vacillate. We thank you that you are constant and immutable. And Father, we thank you for this despite our unbelief, despite the times when we misunderstand what you are doing in us. We misunderstand what your church ought to be doing in the world. Father, we pray for a restoration of that understanding among your people. Father, we pray that as we come to study these things, I pray that we would not embrace them because we like them, but rather because we have seen them in your word. Father, I pray that you'd greatly encourage us. Father, I, I pray that you'd give us heart I pray that we would be strengthened and enlarged, given to joy, given to laughter. I pray that in a thirsty world we would exhibit what it's like to live without thirst. And Father, I pray that we would not be greedy of what you've given us and not be hoarding it to ourselves, but rather drinking it gladly and offering to share it with others. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. I pray that you'd teach us what it means to be biblical evangelists, what it means to have a temple that's a source of much life for a lost world. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. That was Douglas Wilson's talk, The New Heavens and the New Earth, from our audio collection titled, From the River to the Ends of the Earth. If you'd like to hear the rest of the series, you can purchase it at canonpress.com.